I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ron Chernow for his new book on Ulysses S. Grant. I've read every book he's written, and I love the way he talks about that his job as a biographer is to probe the silences, what the subject doesn't want to talk about. For instance, in Grant's case, even though he's got a two-volume set of military memoirs, there are extraordinary things like the accusations about his drinking or his abject poverty at one time during his life that aren't even in the memoirs. And then stay tuned after my interview with Ron Chernow to hear what is currently on my nightstand. But first, my interview with Ron. We are joined today by Ron Chernow, who is one of the most acclaimed biographers alive today. And the only one, of course, to see a significant biography of his turned into a record-breaking hip-hop musical. I won't keep you in suspense. It's called Hamilton. But for those of you who might have first met Ron Chernow through the book Hamilton, please know that he's written The House of Morgan, which won the National Book Award, The Warburgs, which won the George Eccles Prize, Titan, The Life of John D. Rockefeller, nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award, Washington, A Life, which won that little Pulitzer Prize for biography, and then Alexander Hamilton, nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award and, as I said, adapted into the award-winning Broadway musical. His new book, which is a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, is sweeping and a dramatic portrait of one of our most compelling generals and presidents. Ulysses S. Grant's life has typically been misunderstood. He's often characterized as a chronic loser or an inept businessman or the triumphant but brutal Union general of the Civil War. But these stereotypes don't come close to capturing him, as Chernow shows in his masterful biography. The first to provide a complete understanding of the general and the president whose fortunes rose and fell with dizzying speed, Chernow brings lucidity, breadth, and meticulousness in telling the story and creating the thread that binds these seemingly disparate stories together, shedding new light on the man whom Walt Whitman described as nothing heroic and yet the greatest hero. Welcome, Ron Chernow. That was a very beautiful introduction. <laughs> Thank you for those uh, overly generous uh, comments. Thank well, you. well, Ron, uh, as um, I mentioned to you right before uh, we were on the air, I have read every biography um, that you've written, and each one I think, oh, my God, I love this one. I, I love that one because you have this capacity – for us to meet these people in such a full-bodied way for both their outside life and their inside life, the question I'd like to start with is, so your early biographies, Warburg, Rockefeller, and J.P. Morgan, were businessmen, also philanthropists, but primarily defined by being businessmen. What caused the pivot to Washington, Hamilton, and now Grant? Well, you're right, Roxanne. I had done a series of uh, biographies of uh, moguls of the uh, Gilded Age. Um, and what happened after my Rockefeller biography, Titan, was published, 
I was out on the road doing publicity. And at the end, people in the audience would start shouting out, do Carnegie next, do Vanderbilt next, as if I was going to spend the rest of my life <laughs> knocking off one Gilded Edge tycoon after another. And having written about the Morgans, the Warburgs, and the, the Rockefellers, I really felt that I was going to, to say, uh, that I had said what I was going to say about American economic and financial history. And I think that it's very, very important for writers periodically to change direction, to stay fresh. And one of the reasons that um, I chose Alexander Hamilton, I thought that that would be the perfect exit strategy, as it were, that there would be kind of enough um, about finance uh, in there. After all, he was the first Treasury Secretary. There would be enough about finance in there to please the readers who had read my earlier books. At the same time, it would not only open me up to a new period, but to so many new issues. I would be dealing with uh, uh, constitutional uh, law uh, foreign policy, uh, military history, nothing less than the creation of the uh, of the country. And the interesting thing is when I then did George Washington, I don't think that there were a half a dozen people who said to me, Ron, there's no finance in there. You're right. And Alexander Hamilton in between. So it became this, this uh, natural so segue. So switched so now over. I seem to be on to presidents and generals from Washington to Grant. And and in telling the story, since there was, you know, um, Grant, as I'm sure uh, most people know, published what's considered uh, one of the finest memoirs uh, written by a president, a two-volume set that's now in print from Library of America. N- not, not that I'm suggesting as many people read that as will read your biography, because uh, I I doubt it. But what's the story about Grant that you wanted to tell? Well, let me just first say, you know, about uh, Grant's uh, memoirs, which are, um, you know, just justly famous. Um, when I started working on the book, I ran into a friend who said to me, Ron, how can you write a great biography about someone who wrote a great autobiography? And I have to say, I wandered around for several days yeah, thinking question. about that question. <laughs> kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. But then I realized that my job uh, as a biographer is to probe the silences. My job is to mm. talk about what my subject doesn't want to talk about. So Grant and his memoirs, and after all, they're just military memoirs. They don't deal, for instance, with the two-term uh, presidency. But in his memoirs, there's not um, a single syllable about the drinking problem that mm. permeated uh, his life. Uh, in the uh, 1850s, um, he underwent uh, terrible poverty. He was struggling to support his wife and four children as a farmer in St. Louis. He was reduced to selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis. Well, that three or four year period, he skips over in a couple of sentences. So actually, that very much kind of helped to guide me in writing the book in terms of talking about exactly those things that Ulysses S. Grant did not want to talk about. And, you know, Ron, before we come back to the original question, which you wisely uh, enhanced, you know, one of the things I want – I once uh, went to a panel at NYU uh, by biographers that mm-hmm. you were on, and um, you were talking about the process of writing uh, George Washington's biography. And the question that had been asked from the audience is, is there a risk that the biographer becomes so immersed in the life uh, of the subject of their biography that they become biased in a different way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's always a risk about that. It's a, it's a very human and natural uh, response um, that uh, the more you uh, research someone's life, that you um, begin to sympathize with them because you see the world uh, through their eyes. I've done books about people I admire, and I feel, Roxanne, that it's not right to start on a biography if you dislike someone. If you end up disliking (laughs) them, you know, in the course of doing research, you know, fine and dandy. But I feel that you kind of owe it, you know, to your subject to have a presumption, you know, in favor uh, of the the subject. Uh, But I've written about people I uh, admire. I've been lucky, I guess, that in every case without exception, the more I learned about them, the more I um, admired them. Mm. But what I do, because these are admiring books, I go out of my way to make sure that um, every flaw mm. is duly noted in the book. Um, and I have often said great figures can carry the weight of their own uh, defects. My, I assume that my readers are grown-ups, that they're sophisticated people, that they know that history is not the lives of saints. Uh, And what I have found, and this was particularly true with Hamilton, both the book and the musical, that the more you talk about the flaws of a great figure, paradoxically, the more people admire them because it humanizes uh, them. And I hear this all the time from, you know, people seeing the the show where his flaws are very much on display, but they come out of the theater loving him. And so, but I'm always very, very careful to, to note the flaws, my biggest fear is that a um, reviewer or a reader will say, well, of course, Chernow admired so-and-so because he didn't mention, you know, that he had done X. Um, and they all had flaws. They were all very human figures. Well, you know, one of the things that I was struck by um, in reading the biography, um, which despite its heft, uh, is – riveting and you barely realize that you've gone through 900 and something pages. But you talk about, I mean, there's such a dichotomy about Grant's life. So spend a minute first about uh, elaborating on Grant's failures before the Civil War. Well, his failures were kind of numerous and uh, repeated. Um, He failed at one business after um, another. He also was hounded out of the army because he was caught uh, drinking on um, uh, payday. Uh, Grant not only failed at one business after another, he seemed to be an incurably naive and trusting person who was also cheated by one business partner after another. And finally, what happens, Roxanne, as you know from reading the book, is that uh, by the time the Civil War breaks out in 1861, um, Grant has been reduced to going to his uh, father and begging for a job as a clerk Mm. in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. Um, And Grant would be working as a clerk junior to his two younger brothers. Grant was almost 40 years old at this point. But the miraculous thing about this story is that uh, this um, uh, man who seems to be a certifiable failure by the time that he's in his late 30s, um, the Civil War breaks out, and two months later, he's a colonel, and four months later, he's a brigadier general, and ten months later, he's a major general. And the former clerk from the leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, by April 1865, is the general-in-chief of the Union Army and has a million soldiers 
under his command. Doesn't get better than that, you know, in terms of storytelling. What qualities might have been evident while he was experiencing those failures? He did go to West Point. He was pretty much at the bottom of his class at West Point. So were there glimpses of the qualities that then led to the his success or it was just the yin and yang of who he was? That's an excellent question. Yeah, because, you know, number one, um, he was around the middle of his class at West Point. He graduated 21 out of uh, 39. He'd been in the Mexican War where he actually distinguished uh, himself. Right. So he, was, he was a very good soldier. He didn't want to be a soldier. It was one of those cases where he excelled at the very thing in life, you know, that he was least uh, interested uh, in. But one could also see, even during these business failures, he was a very decent determined and hard-working individual who just simply did not have an aptitude for what he was trying to, to do. He was, you know, smart, perceptive. Uh, there was a dignity about him, uh, a, a decency, a tremendous sense of responsibility, and also the sense of kind of never turning back, which becomes his trademark. When we think about his success, one of the things that I hadn't realized is his wife, Julia Dent, who uh, came from a well-to-do slave-owning family in St. Louis, for a period of time seemed significantly more ambitious on her husband's part than he might have been. Well, I mean, it's going to, you know, it's fascinating marriage because Grant comes from um, a, an abolitionist family in Southwest Ohio. He marries into a slave owning, you know, family in Missouri. Julia's family had up to uh, 30 uh, slaves. And um, it was a, a wonderful marriage, unconditional love, total loyalty to each other. People said that they were almost like teenagers. They would always hold. Uh, hands together. They were very publicly, you know, affectionate with each other. But uh, Julia was a very determined woman, and in many ways, she had a deeper belief in Ulysses than he had in himself. And unquestionably, she was more ambitious for him than um, he was for himself. In fact, she so delighted in being the first lady for eight years that she really prodded her husband to try to grab the Republican nomination for president a third time because she missed uh, the White House. She had she had the fire in the belly that he didn't have, although he was more ambitious than he cared to admit. Julie was kind of more openly ambitious. Mm, because it, it, even during that third attempt at the presidency, he wasn't even willing to declare Simply to declare, yes, yeah, she kept kind of prodding him to go to Chicago where the convention uh, was. She was a um, very determined, you know, and feisty lady in that way. And she loved uh, being in the limelight. Uh, she had been a kind of pampered Southern belle growing up on this uh, slave um, plantation. And so I think that when she was uh, first lady, she loved being in the center of the social uh, mm. world. Uh, whereas her husband was very shambling and awkward in social situations. And she was much more socially adept. She taught him how to um, uh, dress and, I think, you know, behave on various uh, occasions. It's kind of a grand story. It's an interesting one for someone 
who turned out to be such a successful politician. He was not a social animal, you know. Reminded me a little bit of uh, the way Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine, was an active, observing, critical, urging wife. I think that that's a very good, good point, a good analogy. That Julia, in a certain way, was much more worldly than her husband was, uh, that, um, and certainly much more sociable. Uh, she loved parties. She loved all sorts of gatherings. And this was really uh, very important um, for the wife of a politician who was not comfortable in a lot of social situations. Um, mm-hmm. Grant was actually reminded me a lot of George Washington to, uh, to the extent that uh, Washington in large social groups, would get very quiet and mm. could be ill at ease. In a small group of people, George Washington would open up and he would be a magnificent uh, storyteller and start regaling people with stories of the Revolutionary War. It was exactly the same way with uh, Grant could be very silent and very wary around strangers, small group of people whom he trusted. He would regale them with stories of the Mexican War and the Civil War and was actually a very, very entertaining uh, conversationalist. But I've heard that said about George W. Bush as well. Yeah, that may be, you know, that may be, it's, it's a certain type. I also say, in, you know, in, in, in the book that there's a certain kind of uh, bashful man who needs the unconditional love mm. of a strong woman. Uh, to support him. And I think that, you know, particularly Grant went through so much failure. He wrestled with the, with the drinking problem. I think that uh, Julia uh, Grant was really kind of the emotional anchor of his life. And there were a lot of people in the uh, Grant uh, family, you know, who saw him almost as a hand-packed husband, you know, that uh, mm. Julia was the dominant and stronger personality. I think that's probably uh, over... Uh, stating it, but she um, Grant always knew that uh, Julia was uh, fiercely in his corner, you know, in any uh, situation, and that meant a great deal. And it's interesting for someone so uh, successful. Um, no reports of Grant having a roving eye. Mm. Readers will be disappointed. There's no sex scandal. In this right. Book. It's easy. Wasn't Alexander Hamilton? He seemed to be someone he met Julia. At a fairly uh, young age, fell in love with her uh, very uh, quickly and adored her. And in fact, um, she had uh, strabismus. So she, she she was cross-eyed. Uh, right. She had a lazy uh, eye, and she was very self-conscious about it. Caused a lot of physical problems for her. And one day during the uh, the late in the war, she went to a doctor to see if she could have corrective eye surgery. And Grant was really perplexed and opposed to this when, when she told him. Uh, and Julia, it's a very poignant uh, line. She said, oh, Ulysses, you've become such a great man and you have such a plain little wife. You know, she was afraid she wouldn't do. And Ulysses said to her, weren't these the two eyes that I fell in love mm. with? And how do you think I would ever want that mm. uh, changed? I mean, who could... Who could ask for more from a spouse, you know? Does it get better than that? So, Ron, uh, Grant's presidency, he was a two-term president, followed Andrew Johnson, who was a disaster after uh, Lincoln's assassination, has been shadowed by charges of corruption and nepotism. Is that an unfair stereotype of his presidency? Well, what I argue in the book, I spent a lot of time on both the scandals and the nepotism, and I should point out that the scandals 
did not um, involve him personally. That is, he was, right. you know, untouched by it. You know, so the criticism was that he had failed to see these very shady characters, you know, in his uh, entourage. Um, and but you know what I um, try to show in the book is that the uh, scandals, which have very much dominated his historical reputation to the point of uh, caricature, I argue that this is kind of the minor story. It was important, mm. but it was the minor story of his administration. Uh, the major story is is what he did uh, to protect uh, the four million African Americans yeah. who had been born into slavery in the South. Um, and who, um, of course, by the end of the Civil War had been emancipated. But to Grant felt a very difficult task. Number one, he had to reintegrate back into the Union the 13 seceded states. Not all of them had rejoined uh, the Union you know, on, on a full-fledged basis by the time he became president. Uh, but it was Grant who had to enforce the 14th Amendment that gave those four million freed slaves, full citizenship rights. And then the 15th Amendment, uh, the most explosive, the most controversial, gave blacks the right to vote. And this mm. triggered off a massive and violent backlash in the South. After all, there were states like South Carolina and Mississippi where blacks were the majority, so the white community was terrified um, of blacks having the right to, to vote. And that um, violent backlash... Um, was organized by the Ku Klux Klan, which came to uh, exercise a reign of terror in most, if not all, southern counties. You know, it was Grant who hired a crusading attorney general who brought 3,000 indictments against the Klan and uh, crushed it. And um, there was no one after Abraham Lincoln uh, who did more for the African-American community than Ulysses S. Grant. And so for me, Roxanne, this is so much more important a story yeah. and required so much courage because not only was Grant dealing with this violent backlash among many white Southerners, um, but as his presidency went on, you know, many Northern liberals began to weary of the need to send federal troops in the South to, to the South African Americans. So he was showing courage not only against the opposition party, which one could say is easy, but he was showing courage against his own party, um, and that requires a considerable uh, degree of courage. Well, I was struck by two things. One is, to me, reading about his role and bravery in dealing with Reconstruction represented the common quality that existed throughout his life, which was a very kind and understanding sense of humanity. I mean, even during his failures, he always seemed to have that kind of sense of fair play and humanity. And it, to me, blossomed in his role during Reconstruction. And what it, what it really made me think about is – what ramifications do you see today directly from the vicissitudes of Reconstruction under Grant's well, this, presidency? This actually goes back to your you know, first question, which I failed to answer <laughs> why I wanted to <laughs> I was gonna bring you back. write the book. It's just gets it. You know, I knew that Grant's life would be the perfect prism through which to view, one, the Civil War, and two, Reconstruction. Mm. There are many Americans who have 
enormously detailed knowledge of the Civil War and know little or nothing about Reconstruction. But Reconstruction was the second act of the drama. If you don't know what happened in Reconstruction, it's like walking out of the drama in the Civil War in the middle of the play. You know, you don't know how it really ended because the South managed to roll back many of the gains of uh, of the war kind of reasserting the status quo uh, ante, everything except for slavery, but the blacks were still kept in a condition of sort of quasi-servitude, you know, during that uh, period. So this is really what I want to get at, and what I, uh, you know, often say to people about Reconstruction is it's the, it's the black hole of American history for most yeah. Americans, but it's the one they need to know most. And so little has been written about it. Yeah, and, um, and uh, it's... Um, I think you can't, for instance, understand why for 150 years we've had a solid South. First, it was a solid Democratic South, then starting 1960s, 1970s, it became a solid Republican South. All of that comes out of Reconstruction, the resentment of the white South, the federal government sending in troops to protect um, black Mm -hmm. uh, citizens, you know, and it created... um, and ongoing hostility to this day towards the federal government. It's, you know, still widely taught in um, southern schools, not all, but many, that the cause of the Civil War was not slavery, it was states' rights, you know, it was this despotic northern government invaded the the South. And I really thought that um, to understand contemporary um, political attitudes, one has to go back to this history. You know, it all boils down to the stories we tell ourselves and our understanding mm. of these historical events. And there are two competing narratives about what happened during the Civil War and Reconstruction, you know, and there's one in the South and there's one in the rest of the uh, of, of, of the country. That's kind of an over uh, overstatement. Um, so I think that it's extremely, extremely important to understand. You know, the other thing is, and I have to say, um, I was guilty of this too. Until I did this book, I didn't realize the extent to which there had been a civil rights movement in this country in the late 1860s and early 1870s. We all know the civil rights movement in the 1950s, 1960s. I'll never forget coming upon that letter that General Philip Sheridan sent to Grant in 1867 from New Orleans saying, we desegregated streetcars in New Orleans today, he said up until this time, the blacks rode in one streetcar, you know, and the whites rode in another. Now they're happily sitting side by side. 1867, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act of 1866. We had a Civil Rights Act of 1875. All of this is completely unknown to most Americans. And I think, Ron, you know, the other story that to me is also not told it. So that happened during Reconstruction, which I think would surprise most people and, it, you know, as you just elaborated on. But then there was the backlash that serious and successful attempts were made to put blacks in the South back in the position that they had been in, not quite pre-Civil War, but certainly more approximate yeah, to that. Yeah, they passed these things called, you know, the Black Codes. Yeah, um, that essentially, you know, tied them down to the same plantations that they had been working before the war. It was a new form of uh, of, of, of certitude. So they had very, very few 
freedoms. And you know, one point I just wanted to, to, to add, because we were talking before about the stereotype of Grant, President Grant with the scandals. Well, part of that was that in uh, 1874, as part of the backlash against Reconstruction in the, in the South, the Democratic Party, again, the Liberal Party at the time was the Republicans, Grant's party. The Democrats in 1874 took over the Congress, and they launched all these hearings into corruption in the Grant administration. And basically, and there was a lot of corruption, but there was a lot of corruption in Johnson's administration, Lincoln's administration. It was very widespread uh, in the, uh, you know, in mid-19th century America. But uh, basically, you know, the Democrats who were conducting those hearings into scandals in the Grant administration we're really trying to discredit Grant, not because they were so upset about the corruption. They were upset about Reconstruction. And so mm. um, they really used that you know, image of the corrupt Grant in order to discredit him and the whole policy of Reconstruction in the South. Well, because that – I wonder if that dovetails. One of the questions I was going to ask you – was lots of presidents have had failures of policy or personal challenges that are no better or worse than Grant's, yet his reputation has remained sort of tarnished. I think it's coming up. You know, the the, the books written about him um, over the last 10 or 15 years have, without exception, Switched. Um, had, had a you know, much more favorable interpretation. But I don't think it's penetrated common sensibility. I think the big change is Grant was the president most associated with Reconstruction. Uh, For, you know, many years after the Civil War, the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction uh, was dominated by Southern uh, historians, and Reconstruction was presented as a fiasco. Mm. There were these corrupt carpet beggars, there were these illiterate black legislators, and you see that it was incorporated, that view, into the first movie, Birth of the Nation, back in 1915. Uh, it was incorporated, uh, you know, many of those views into um, Gone with the Wind. Uh, you know, what's happened over the last generation or two, led by people like Eric Foner at Columbia, is that there's been a complete revision of the view of Reconstruction as uh, a very noble attempt to create a biracial society in the South, you know, complete with a widespread civil rights movement. And so I think that what's happening, you know, it kind of starts with the professional historians and biographers and then eventually filters down, right. um, is that as we see Reconstruction as if a failure, a very noble failure, that if Reconstruction was good, then Grant was a good president. You know, mm. If Reconstruction was bad since He was Grant, going to go down then, with then, it. Yeah. You know, so I think that uh, really his reputation fell when the general view of Reconstruction was that it was a fiasco. Uh, and as there has been this you know, revisionist uh, view that it was if a failure, a very noble failure, I think that Grant's um, uh, standing has been reassessed and has mm. risen. Certainly for its bravery. Well, we can't talk about Grant without talking about him and Robert E. Lee. Right. So what what I'd love to do is two two parts. One is get your um, view on what Grant thought about him and then maybe um, read uh, a, a little piece from the book 
uh, of the ultimate uh, showdown between yeah, Robert E. I mean, Lee. You know, Grant had a lot of respect for Robert E. Lee as a general, but he did think that he was overrated. Uh, he said that Lee was a man who needed sunshine. He felt that Lee, both during and after the war, there was this uncritical adoration in the in the press. Uh, I think that he felt that um, Lee was a brilliant tactician in individual battles, but had did not have a really kind of sophisticated overall strategic sense of how to win the war, which Grant certainly uh, uh, did. He also felt after the war that um, Lee was kind of quietly working against Reconstruction. Yeah. Lee opposed the 15th Amendment, giving blacks the uh, right to vote, etc. So, And respect- Grant worked hard to keep Lee uh, from being charged uh, with treason by Johnson. You know, he saved Lee because uh, in, uh, you know, after... Uh, the Civil War, there was a grand jury in uh, Virginia that wanted to indict him for treason. Mm. Uh, and at that point, um, President Andrew Johnson wanted Lee prosecuted for, for treason. Uh, Grant, you know, went to the White House. Even though Grant had given his word to Lee. Well, Grant, you know, at Appomattox, and this was very kind of key to the agreement, Grant had given uh, his word that the Confederate generals would not be prosecuted for treason, which they easily... Uh, could have been. And so when suddenly it looked like uh, Lee was going to be prosecuted for treason with the president's blessing, um, Grant went to the White House um, and in no uncertain terms told President Johnson that if Robert E. Lee was prosecuted for treason, that he, Grant, would resign because he, Grant, had given Robert E. Lee his sacred word at Appomattox, that he would not be prosecuted for mm. treason. It wasn't that Grant thought that, you know, he couldn't be prosecuted for treason, but he, he, he felt that uh, they could not have ended the war at that point without that promise, and he was not going to uh, renege on the promise that he made to Lee. And needless to say, Lee was, um, you know, very, very, you know, touched that <laughs> suddenly his great opponent, Ulysses S. Grant, you know, is saving him from a, a treason prosecution. Right. It's a great story. Okay, let me read. I'm going to read um, a, a portion. Now, this is uh, Grant is approaching uh, Appomattox uh, Courthouse um, for the famous meeting with uh, Robert E. Lee in April 1865. With the Confederate Army bivouacked in a nearby valley, uh, General Phil Sheridan directed Grant to a brick house on the outskirts of Appomattox Courthouse, where Lee awaited him. The house was owned by Wilmer McLean, who had owned a house at Bull Run, damaged during the first battle there. He had fled to the sleepy hamlet of Appomattox Courthouse, hoping to escape further hostilities. It would now claim the odd distinction of witnessing the beginning of the Civil War in his backyard and its ending in his parlor. Approaching the historic rendezvous, Grant was painfully aware of how poorly costumed he was to enact this lofty scene. His slovenly appearance had come about merely from being detached from his headquarters wagon. He had no inkling that later historians might be charmed by his outfit or assume that his mud-caked clothing made a political statement. Quite simply, Grant hadn't expected to meet Lee this soon. Quote, I had an old suit on without my sword and without any distinguishing mark of rank except the shoulder straps of a lieutenant general on a woolen blouse. I was afraid Lee might think I meant to show him steady discourtesy by so coming, at least I thought so. 
later asked what was uppermost in his mind at this sublime moment. The sheepish grand said prosaically, my dirty boots and wearing no sword. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful line. Wow. So, Ron, we're running out of time, and we we haven't gotten to talk about the extraordinary over two-year round-the-world trip that Julia and uh, Ulysses S. Grant took after his presidency or his attempt at uh, getting the nomination again or how they escaped um, being assassinated on the same uh, night as Abraham Lincoln. But there's two questions I don't want to uh, miss asking you before I lose you. One is, what was it about Hamilton that made him uniquely suited to a musical, or will we be singing one about Washington, Grant, Rockefeller, and J.P. Well, Morgan? I haven't. This is my last <laughs> hip-hop musical, anyway. <laughs> um, you know, I, Hamilton's story was improbable. He was illegitimate, orphaned, uh, penniless. He was a self-invented outsider, comes out of nowhere. Um, and becomes the founding father of the country. I think that there were, you know, other things. He, he was handsome. He was dashing. He was romantic, energetic. Well, wonderful things for your leading man in a Broadway show. Uh, people love stories about flawed genius, and mm. Hamilton is the perfect, you know, oh, type of the flawed genius. And then, you know, when I first met Lynn Manuel Miranda and told me he went through the hip hop musical about Hamilton, I didn't realize, you know, what the connection between Hamilton and hip-hop would be. But as, as time went on, I saw that the way that Lynn was presenting Hamilton in the show was uh, this very uh, driven character. And there was something about that intense, driven character that matched up perfectly with the intense, driven hip-hop rhythms and lyrics. And an underdog. And an underdog, yeah, uh, kind of, you know, underdog who comes out of uh, the, the top dog, at least for a while. Uh, and so um, there's, a, there's a fairy tale quality about this uh, illegitimate orphan penniless kid. It's like a, a Dickens uh, story, the way the dreamlike progression of his life. And then it's also like um, a Greek tragedy. He goes from strength to strength mm. to strength, and then there's a dying fall, and he's undone by the same qualities that had, you know, driven him to fame. Yeah, which is not really surprising. I mean, often our greatest strength somehow becomes an element of failure. I mean, I think you see that in lots of stories about great men. Yeah, but, you know, I I said to to Lynn one day, I said, if if one had invented the story, it couldn't have been better invented for dramatization because a dying fall happens right about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way you know, through the story. So if you were William Shakespeare doing, you know, a dramatization of this life, that's exactly where you would uh, put it. And this wasn't a structure that I imposed as the author. It was just a, a structure that happened to be built into uh, Hamilton's life. It was just such a perfectly structured uh, story. And Lynn always felt the best way to tell the story is just stick as closely as possible to the truth. Yeah. So speaking of fairy tale, um, do you think you would have made up as you're a toiling 
albeit critically, wildly, critically successful biographer, that you'd become this, like, Broadway no, impress? No, it's, it's been as implausible as any of the stories <laughs> I've written about. You know, kind of my my image pre-Hamilton musical was of this very conscientious <laughs> nose-to-the-grindstone biographer. Now you're a glamour guy. <laughs> yeah, now I'm kind of seen as the, the hip, cool historian <laughs> because I hang hey, Ron, out, go you know, with, with uh, this hip, cool... A uh, young crowd on uh, on Broadway, and I, I love it. It's just been so delightful. And why not? Why not? And, Ron, what are you working on now? Now I'm just, you know, uh, I'm going to be going out and publicizing the, the book, and I'm going to wait till I finish the uh, publicity tour, and then I'll figure out what's what's next. Uh, my mind is a little too crowded with Grant at the moment. Yeah. So one thing that occurred to me as we were having that conversation about Julia, maybe it's time for you to write about a woman. Yeah. You know, a lot lot of people have have, have said that, and I'm entirely um, uh, open to it. There are different women I would love to have written about, Abigail Adams, um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. Uh, You know, I always have my eye out for uh, a woman. Yeah. Well, and I do think, you know, just the way you've brought you know, there were other biographies of Washington. There were other biographies of Rockefeller. I yeah. think, you know, the the one that has always fascinated me is Abigail Adams. Yeah. Um, and I love a biography that was done by Lynn Wheatley about her. But I think the kind of eye that you bring uh, to biographies might add a dimension that hasn't been told. And I think the role, like we talked about Julia Grant and it's known about Abigail Adams or – Certainly, um, you know, even someone like Nancy Reagan and the obvious being Eleanor Roosevelt, but their roles in yeah. these presidencies, I don't think those stories have been told with the kind of skill that you could bring to it. Well, thank you. I will I will think about that. That's nice of you to say. But, you know, I have with, with all the people that I've uh, written about, there have been many previous biographies. In fact, uh, when I did George Washington, there have been 900 previous biographies since his death, so it was right. kind of an act of hubris to perpetrate number 901. And, uh, you know, I did it, and the same was true with Grant, because there have been good books about Grant written in uh, recent years, but I just felt that I did uh, a certain kind of narrative biography that was different from the way that other people uh, handled it. So my career has really been based on that premise that I'm going to, you know, do a different sort of biography. Yeah, and I think, you know, I would say, um, you know, the one that really got my attention first of your books was Titan, Mm -hmm. which presented an entirely different understanding of John D. Rockefeller, where he too had a reputation that was slightly one-dimensional. Yeah, I have a kind of contrarian streak, and I kind of like to take these, you know, stereotypes and then work off them. And people always turn out to be much more uh, complicated than the, the stereotype. There's always some kind of, you know, historical cartoon that you start out dealing with. And then as you get deeper into the research, you're dealing with real human beings with strengths and flaws. Rockefeller certainly had his his flaws, and I tried not to, to stint, you know, in telling that story. But there are also kind of wonderful sides to his um, life, uh, notably the uh, philanthropy, and I really wanted to do justice to that and really kind of create a rounded and truthful picture of the person. So, Ron, the question I often, uh, or if not always, ask authors is, what's the book that changed your life? That's a very good question. Well, 
I don't know if this is a big change in my life, but I think that it's germane with, uh, with, 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 with Grant. When I was a teenager, I read Carl Sandburg's Lincoln. Mm. And I could remember I was just absolutely enchanted and transported. I could still remember his description of, you know, the night of Lincoln going off to Ford's Theater. I was quite haunted by all of those stories and lines. And so when I started doing Grand, I thought, oh, nice. Now I'll get to read Carl Sandburg again all these years later. I read eight or ten pages. I couldn't go on. Because the first eight or ten pages about Abraham Lincoln's mother, about whom we know next to nothing... And it was just one in completely invented scene after another. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> how, how the greater fall. Do you know which biography of Abraham Lincoln, and I'm uh, regretting I'm not remembering his name, but I picked up a biography of his that was written by a British guy who was contemporaneous. It was written in the early 1900s. Uh-huh. And so he had been alive during the Civil War. And that is a fascinating way oh, to I would read. Like to, I would like to know the name. I'll send the, you the name. I would, yeah. Actually, the, the biography, because there's a lot of good, a lot of good books. I'm like, um, but the, the one that I um, used the most in doing the grand biography was the David Herbert Donald, you know, which yeah. is simply called Lincoln. I just find it's clear, it's lucid, you know, it's reliable, and that's what I needed. That came out in the in the 90s, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. But this British one, I mean, it's a little slice of Lincoln. It's not quite the, right. you know, the big biography like the one that yeah. you're uh, referring to. But it was just such a fascinating perspective, first from a Brit and two from someone of that time. Well, I would love to read that. Yeah, I'll, I'll send the name. Clearly one that I'm not uh, familiar with, uh, but maybe that'll be my airplane reading. I'm All right. Sure. <laughs> Ron, thank you so much. My um, pleasure. Thank you, Roxanne. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again to Ron Chernow. His book, Grant, is now available. And I'll leave you with what's currently on my nightstand, which is Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach. Jennifer Egan is well-known. Manhattan Beach is a little bit different. I've just started it, but it's about a young woman who ends up working at the Naval Yard in Brooklyn. You know, before Brooklyn was all about the Naval Yard being about concerts, it was about building ships. And Jennifer brings her normal, incredible talent for storytelling to Manhattan Beach. And the second book, which I just started, is Jesmyn Ward, Sing, Unburied, Sing. She has been renowned since her first book was published, Salvage the Bones. She has the capacity to tell uh, a story. This one's based in Mississippi and talks about the complexity of the heritage of the state of Mississippi in a way that feels multidimensional, and profound. So right now, that's what's on my nightstand, and I'll report back as I finish these to see if they've held up to their fantastic openings. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to Just the Right Book podcast on iTunes and help us spread the word by telling your friends, your family, anyone who loves books. And for a complete list of all the books we've talked about, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Pat Keogh, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all so much for listening.